0: good evening, everybody. Good evening. If you would, get your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Romans. You can see on the screen behind me, we will be in the book of Romans tonight as we continue our preaching theme for 2021 on the Gospel according to Romans. We're going to be in Romans the 12th chapter this evening, but I actually need to begin near the end of chapter 11, so be queuing that passage up and we're going to read a couple of verses there momentarily. It is great to see everybody tonight. I'm so glad that you are here and you made the decision to be back once again for this second opportunity that we have on the Lord's Day to sing and pray together and to study together and be encouraged by one another through these worshipful activities. It's been a good day. Lots to be thankful to God about and I'm glad that we're able to be here and close out the day in this period of worship once again. I I preached a very long time last Sunday night. I was just this shy of a full hour. I was actually quite proud of myself that I still was able to keep it under an hour as we covered three chapters last week. That was a kind of a monumental task, but I'm glad that we did that because it now brings us to Romans the 12th chapter. And I'm going to go ahead and give you my word this evening that I will not be preaching anywhere close to the length that I preached last Sunday night. In fact, we may be in this chapter the least amount of time of any of the chapters that we've studied thus far because it is so practical and there's just not going to be a whole lot that I'm going to need to say other than to just read the text and we just take it for what it says. And so let's begin by reading Romans the 11th chapter. I'm reading here in verse number 30. In Romans 11 and in verse 30 Paul says, For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, he's talking to the Gentiles, But now you have received mercy because of their disobedience. That's the Jews' disobedience. So they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. Let me read for you a little story. Many of you probably know how this story goes. It is kind of a nursery rhyme fairy tale that many of us have heard before. I'm going to read for you kind of the concluding passage or concluding thoughts of that story. It goes like this. Papa bear said, somebody's been sleeping in my bed. Then mama bear said, somebody's been sleeping in my bed too. And then baby bear said, I'll have some green eggs and hams. Whoa, hold on. That, that didn't quite sound right, did it? It kind of sounds like we jumped the rails from one thing to another somewhere in there. If you know the story of Goldilocks and the three bears, then what you are waiting to hear is you're waiting for Baby Bear to say, somebody's been sleeping in my bed too and she's still there. That's what we expect to hear in that story. What we do not expect is to hear Baby Bear jumping off and talking about Dr. Seuss sorts of things with green eggs and ham. In many ways, I am afraid that that's what happens when we get to Romans, the 12th chapter, is we end up making the mistake where we jump from one story to an entirely different story. For 11 chapters now, Paul has talked about the unity of the church at Rome the things that they need to understand so that they can be truly united in Christ. He has urged those Jewish Christians and those Gentile Christians to see how essentially they are all the same and they are all saved in the exact same way. In fact, that really was the summation of what Paul just said in the verses we just read in chapter 11, verses 30, 31, and 32. Paul says, you Gentiles, you used to be out. But by the mercy of the Lord, you're now in. And those Jews who have rejected Jesus, God wants them to be in as well, and they can by the mercy of the Lord. Because God's desire, verse 32, is that all would have His mercy. And so all of the first 11 chapters are designed to show that all the fussing and the dividing that those brethren were doing. I actually appreciate Matt leading that first song, Sanctuary. Didn't ask him to lead that, but it has that line in there. Lord, teach your children to stop the fighting and start uniting and be as one. Paul's trying to get these brethren in Rome to understand that, that they actually have so very much in common and so they need to get along. But what happens is, as we read those first 11 chapters, And then we come to chapter 12 and suddenly we want to completely just jump the train of thought and we want to start talking about something that is completely different and disconnected from what we've just got done reading and studying. We forget all about Goldilocks and we start talking about green eggs and ham. And I know why we do that. It's because chapter 12 of Romans is such a famous chapter. There are a number of famous and well-known admonitions and verses in this chapter. And these chapters, the verses in it, are fairly straightforward. They are very quote-worthy. And I'll say as well, as for myself and for other preachers, preachers get a lot of fodder out of chapter 12. And we just like to kind of pick pieces here and there and we preach on those ideas out of Romans chapter 12. And so what ends up happening is we then come to Romans the 12th chapter and we don't have any concern and we don't have any interest for all the stuff that came before it. We're completely disconnected from the things that Paul's been trying to set forth and it's no wonder then that people have a hard time understanding the book of Romans. Well, in Romans chapter 12, Paul is going to talk about how the gospel is transformative how it transforms our attitudes and our behaviors. And there's so much practical stuff here. But I want you to listen to me. Paul wants his readers, he wants Christians to be transformed in their attitudes and in their behaviors for what purpose? So that the church can be united. We need to keep the main thing, the main thing, when we're studying here in this chapter. And that is the main thing that Paul has been working toward for this entire epistle. Now there's no doubt about it. When you get to chapter 12, there's kind of a change in tone. It just kind of reads differently from chapter 12 on forward. But the subject matter still remains the same. We're talking about things that will help this church to be united. In fact, even here in chapter 12, you can't miss that. Can you just look ahead at a couple of sampling of verses? Look in verse 3. In verse 3, Paul says, don't think too highly of yourself. In verse 5, he says, though we have many members, we are one body in Christ. Drop down to verse 10, he talks about loving one another. Verse 16, he talks about being at peace with one another. Paul has written so much about how Jews and Gentiles, they come together to form one covenant community. Now he wants to talk to them practically about how to be that community. And you and I, as we read and study along in this chapter this evening, we too will be profited from that as we'll learn some critically important things that will help us to be a church that is united, one body in Christ. And so... Let's begin with those first two verses. Probably the most famous of the verses here in Romans chapter 12. I actually just got done talking about these verses with the kiddos during the Bible drill. Let's read them together. Romans 12 verse 1. There Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, there's no doubt about it. These are wonderful verses. I have a sermon that I have preached. The whole sermon, the whole 35-40 minutes that I preach, I preach just from those two verses. It's an amazing passage. But can I draw your attention to probably the most important word in that passage? It's the word in verse 1, the word... Therefore. That's a helpful word for us because it reminds us and keeps us kind of honest and making sure that we're holding the connection to all the stuff that came before verse 1. was an old brother at Providence growing up. He'd like to get up and whenever he'd get to these passages, that had the word therefore. He'd always remind everybody, if you see the word therefore in the Bible, you need to see what it's there for. And that's a pretty good rule of thumb. Paul's got that word in here because he's connecting it to all of the first 11 chapters. We need to keep that in mind. He's talking here about some things that will help to bring about unity. And what Paul says is is he says, these are now the things that we're going to do. This is what we're going to do. And what follows in verses 1 and 2 in a lot of ways is an excellent summary of the gospel. And it really will kind of provide the thesis for chapters 12 through 16 that we do what we do. And we are who we are because of verse 1, the mercies of God. That is is why we are what we are. That is the only reason we can be in the position that we are as Christians is because of the mercies of the Lord. And so what are we? Well, Paul defines what we are, verse 1. We are a living sacrifice. Now, I would have you notice there's actually lots of words in verses 1 and 2 that really are related to worship. Maybe the word I would really call our attention to in verse 1 is the word present. I'm going to do some presenting. In the Old Testament, if you came to the tabernacle or if you came to the temple and you brought your animal, you brought the best of your livestock and you were there going to make a sacrifice, what would you do with that animal? You would come and you would then present it to the priest. And he would then lay that on the altar and make the offering for that, etc., cetera. You would present that. That was your gift to God. Well, somebody would maybe wonder, well, what about in New Testament Christianity? Animal sacrifices are out. Read the book of Hebrews. There's no more of that. So where's the sacrifice going to come from? What is the sacrifice? Even in pagan religions, the idolaters of that time probably looked at Christians and said, hey, you guys aren't sacrificing. I don't see how you can possibly please your God if you're not making a sacrifice. Well, Paul comes along here in these first two verses and he says, oh, there is a sacrifice. It's a very special kind of sacrifice. It's a living sacrifice. The sacrifice is me. The sacrifice is you. That's how we explain the sacrificial system. We are the sacrifices. Which leads to that last phrase in verse 1 that is kind of hard to translate. The ESV that I'm reading from uses the expression spiritual worship. Your translation might say reasonable service. I think really just the idea there is getting at the heart of man, the heart of the Christian. What are are we all about? I would just say here that idea of spiritual worship, I I do think Paul is conveying here the idea that the life of a Christian is designed to be a life of worship. That is that there is a sense in which everything that we do should be designed to be worship for God. Now, I, I, I want to put a real important caveat on that. Most of the time when the word worship is found in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's talking about a coming together, an assembled form of worship where we come together and we do those prescribed things, those things that we know please the Lord, the things that are worship to Him. We've done some of that tonight. We've sang songs to God. We've offered prayers unto God. We've partaken of the Lord's Supper today. Those are worshipful activities. And on the main, that's what the Bible means when it talks about the word worship. But I do think that Paul's stressing here that disciples of Jesus need to view all of life, in a sense, as being worship to God. That is that everything that we say, think, and do should be designed to bring glory to God, to exalt God, to honor God. Well, somebody would ask, well, how exactly does a person do that? Well, the way we do that, verse 2, is by being transformed. That word transformed, of course, comes from the term where we get our English word, metamorphosis. And we immediately think about you know sixth grade biology class and learning about the metamorphosis process from a caterpillar to a butterfly. It is a dramatic change. You go from one thing to something entirely different. And that's the kind of transformation that the Bible is talking about here. In fact, notice the contrast that Paul makes there in verse 2. He says this transformation is predicated on the fact that we're not going to be conformed to the world. That word conformed, as I talked about with the kids in the Bible drill, the word conformed means to be pressed to the mold. I use the illustration often of making some gingerbread man cookies. How do you make gingerbread man cookies? Well, you get you a big roll of dough and you get it all laid out and get it all nice and smooth. And then you get you a gingerbread man mold, maybe a metal or a a plastic mold, and you take that mold of the gingerbread man, got a head and a couple arms and a couple legs, and you then press that down onto the dough and what happens? Well, that dough then conforms to the shape of that mold. And then when you take that mold and you put it over over here and over here and over here and over here, what do you get? Well, you get a bunch of gingerbread men and they all look exactly like that mold. Paul says that as great as that is when it comes to making cookies, Paul says when it comes to the world, don't do that. Don't be pressed to the mold and be a cookie cutter replica of what you see in the world. What the world offers is darkness. I talked about that at length this morning. That's not what we want any part of. We're not concerned with how they act and how they think and how they do. We don't want to be that. Instead, we want to be transformed. And I would have you know that this transformation, Paul says it happens from the inside out. And how does that happen? It happens by changing our minds. We have to change how we think. If we're going to please God, we're going to have to think differently. And that change of mind means we're going to refuse to be squeezed into the world's mold. We're going to think differently. And when we think differently, that means we're going to act differently. And our very lives, at the end of verse 2, our very lives will then show and be a reflection of the perfect and acceptable will of God. Again, in a lot of ways, and I'm going to come back to these verses even next week, But these first two verses form the thesis for this whole section. Here's how we need to live. Here's what we need to do. We're changed. We're different. We're transformed. Paul then wants to really start fleshing that out and now making that very pointed for the Christians there at Rome. Verse 3. Verse 3, Paul then says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. And we are individually members one of another. Having gifts then that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, then do that in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in His teaching. The one who exhorts in His exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy. Do it with cheerfulness. Now, I don't know if you've thought this before or you've noticed this, but it seems to me that congregations in the first century New Testament world, it seems as if many of them were beset with what I would call gift envy where you had brothers and sisters in the congregation who were envious of one another's gifts. If that's maybe not evident here in the Roman letter, read the first Corinthian letter, chapters 12, 13, and 14. There was lots of envy going on about he's got this gift and she's got that gift and I don't have that gift and my gift is better than your gift. On and on that goes. And if that was happening in Rome, then Paul's wanting these brothers and sisters to think accurately about themselves to think accurately, soberly about their abilities and to think about what they can do for each other and how they can do that without looking down on one another, without looking down on the brother who doesn't have the same gift that I do, without looking down and thinking less of that sister who maybe is not able to do all the things that I can do. There's lots of interest there in verse 3, that phrase that's used about the measure of faith. What does that mean? word measure there immediately makes us think of a ruler or a measurement, what's being measured out. People often ask, is Paul talking about the measure of, of our own faith individually? Or is he talking about our measure of, of the faith? Some folks will argue that if it means that God has given a, a measure of personal faith to this person, and he's given another measure of personal faith to that person over there, that that's what Paul's talking about. But I, I must tell you, I'm not sure how that really fits in what Paul's trying to convey here. It seems to me if God somehow gave this person more faith and this person had less faith, that seems like that would actually end up contributing to the division and the turmoil and the problems that existed in that church. It would cause somebody to say, hey, look at me. God gave me so much more faith than you. Bless your heart. You don't have nearly as much faith as I have. Maybe one of these days God will give you that kind of faith. No, I I, I, I don't think that's what it's talking about. I think it's probably better to see this simply as the faith. That is the basic standard by which all Christians are called to live. We all have and we all share that same faith. We can have unity in that. But we're also mindful of the fact that we're not all a bunch of clones. We don't all look exactly the same. We don't all act exactly the same. We don't even all think exactly the same about every single thing. We have differing talents. We have differing abilities. We have different things that we can contribute and bring to the table and I think that's where Paul is going here in verses 6, 7, and 8. Paul lists off some of these gifts and yes, let's be mindful, some of the gifts he mentions here are supernatural in nature. He's talking about some spiritual gifts, the gift of prophecy. Well, there's no doubt about that. That would have been a Holy Spirit-given gift. But some of the other things that he mentions there are not supernatural gifts. They are, in fact, gifts that that we may possess even today in 2021. Maybe the best way to kind of help us kind of make the distinction there is to to just talk about talents. All of us have some kind of talent. Everybody's got some kind of talent not saying that because you have a talent that means you're the best in the whole world at that thing. But all of us have something that we do pretty good, that we maybe do really, really well at. And what we need to remember is we need to remember that God gives all of us different abilities for the purpose of using them in the kingdom. I could say lots about all these things individually in verses 6, 7, and 8, but there's two of them can I just call our attention to. They always stand out to me and... Both of these are things that I, in a lot of ways, I I, I covet. I have some envy for folks who possess these particular gifts. For example, in verse 8, it talks about people who have the gift of giving. There are some people who have been blessed so very much. And as a result, they are able to give so very much. And they're able to do that without making the recipient of those gifts feel somehow indebted to them or maybe even cause them to feel worthless about that. I I I think that's a marvelous gift and we need not ever kind of undersell that. We tend to think of the gifts as being most important as the guy who gets up and preaches a lesson. Oh, he's so good at speaking and communicating. Or the guy who gets up and leads the singing. Oh! He has such an amazing vocal talent and a beautiful singer. and Oh, those are the most important gifts. Those, those really are not necessarily the most important gifts. What about this? The gift of giving. I'll call your attention as well in verse 8 to the gift of mercy. I marvel at brothers and sisters who whenever tragedy befalls others, or some other kind of terrible situation, some other kind of difficulty that a brother or a sister experiences, people who have gifts of mercy, they're able to come along and they're able to just know what to say and how to say it. Sometimes they have the gift of knowing when not to say anything. They just have that knack for knowing to be silent. And they're able to provide real comfort and a real shoulder for folks who are hurting. They're able to run to those who are weeping, Whenever others maybe are a little bit more uncomfortable about that. I'm just thankful for those folks. And we have folks like that here in this congregation. And may God bless you. And may God bless more of us to develop those gifts. May that tribe increase here and everywhere. Why? To help bring about greater unity in the body of Christ. Now that then leads to this last big section in Romans chapter 12. And that's verses 9 through 21, where Paul just gets ultra-specific. He doesn't just list a bunch of things. Hey, some have this gift and some have that gift. No, he's now going to kind of make these as commands. He's going to give specific instructions on what you and I, what the Roman church needed to do in order to be transformed. And he talks about various ways in which we can transform how we treat each other. Can we just read along and just kind of make some observations along the way? Romans chapter 12 verse 9. He begins by saying, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I'm not going this evening to try to you know pack all of these together and try to make subcategories of things and try to give some kind of fluid explanation for why all these things are stacked the way that they are. If you're actually reading the Greek text, it really just kind of reads like, when it comes to this, do this. When it comes to this, do this. And it's just this big long list. And that's what we have here. But Paul starts with probably the most important thing. He starts by talking about the principle of love. What would happen? What would happen if in every congregation the members of it tried to out-love all the other members? Well, Wouldn't that be a good problem to have? Where everybody's trying to one-up one another in expressions of love. Or when he talks here about serving. What if we all were trying to out-serve each other? I'm not talking here about some kind of you know, worldly competitive sort of thing where we're trying to you know, gain some kind of special favor with God. No, we're just always pushing each other to do greater and to do better, love each other more, serve each other better. That is a pure love. That is a genuineness in serving. The result of that, I believe, would be unity. That's what would happen if everybody was trying to outdo one another in love and in service. And in fact, this is the kind of love when he talks here, specifically in verse 10, about loving one another with brotherly affection. I think that's the kind of love that is going to be quick to overlook slights and maybe unkind words or maybe just thoughtless words. Going to be willing to look past that. Not going to make a big mountain out of little tiny molehills. Not going to do that. Instead, I'm going to look to have peace. Going to look to get things worked out as quickly as possible. Because we're a family, brotherly affection, sisterly affection. Verse 11, he continues on. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. The admonition that Paul gives there in verse 11 about zeal really is a good reminder that we cannot get by in the kingdom with this let's-see-how-little-I-can-do-and-still-get-by-with sort of mentality. There's no place for bare minimum Christianity. We cannot somehow please God with such an attitude as that. It's impossible. Instead, we need to strive for more, strive for excellence. And once again, think about how that just has an encouraging effect. You ever been around somebody in the congregation who, man, they're just just doing it. They're just doing all kinds of things. And you see them and you observe them. And man, what's it do? It makes you, makes you want to step up your game. makes you want to be more involved. makes you want to be more like them. Imitate them as they're trying to imitate Christ. That's a positive thing. We want to do all that we can, as verse 12 talks about, to stir each other up to more hope and more patience and more prayer. Verse 13 now. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. I've already said something a little bit there about giving, but I do want to focus on the back half of verse 13, seeking to show hospitality. It it, it can't be said enough just how important hospitality was in the first century world in the day in which Paul wrote this. I'm afraid that we read the word hospitality in our Bible and what we immediately think of is getting our house all nice and straight and clean and then we invite a bunch of folks over for, for supper. Okay, maybe that's kind of we've kind of taken that term and we've accommodated it to make it fit our world and our circumstances. But in the book of Romans, that's not what that word meant. In the first century world, we need to remember they didn't have hotels and bed and breakfasts and Airbnbs everywhere that you went. And so as a result, hospitality became really important because it meant essentially the taking in of strangers. It meant taking in brothers and sisters. who Maybe I don't even know them very well. But because they're my brother and because they're my sister in Christ, I'm going to provide for their needs. I'll say again, I'm not saying that it's wrong for us to use hospitality in the sense of inviting folks over to our house or having a barn bash or having a movie night with some of our brothers and sisters from church and that sort of thing. I think there's hospitality in that sense. But even more so, this is talking about providing for the needs of somebody. Somebody needs a bed to sleep in. Somebody needs food put on the table for them. That's that contributing to the needs of that individual. Verse 14 now, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. I don't know anybody who looks forward to having to put verse 14 into practice in their life. But Christianity had most certainly caused such a furor in the first century Roman world that it was time for disciples at that time to double down even more on good behavior. Conducting themselves in the right kind of way, even toward people who might have been abusive. In fact, in chapter 13, we will talk about the Christian's duty toward civil government. And we'll think about what that meant in the first century world and what that meant to be able to bless even people who persecuted. Verse 15 now, Paul says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. I will confess to you, I think the admonition in verse 15, it's actually very tough for me to do sometimes. Sometimes it is harder to rejoice with a brother or a sister who's been blessed in some way than it is to weep with somebody whenever they're suffering and they're sad. I find it more natural for me to to weep or to feel sorrow for somebody when they're hurting than I am to feel happy for somebody when good things are coming to them. But Paul says that's part of the mindset. That's part of the thinking of Christians where we're going to be looking for ways to rejoice with our brethren, to weep with our brethren. That is part of unity. Verse 16 now. Paul says, verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. That expression, living in harmony, would have been really important Paul's actually going to rephrase that idea and he's going to kind of repeat it when we get to verse 18 as he talks about living peaceably with all. But adding to this, the text does talk about just kind of we need to rid ourselves of some of the attitudes and some of the thinking that ends up destroying unity. I'll call our attention specifically there to the phrase associate with the lowly. What do you think that references? I think if we're thinking about the church, if that's really what this is mainly about, and it is, I think that might be a reference to getting out of our own circle. Do you know what I mean by that? All of us within the church, this is true everywhere, we all have kind of our own circle of friends, our circle of people that we're just, we're just closer to. And that's, that's not a bad thing. That's not a wrong thing. Jesus had His close inner circle, Peter, James, and John. That didn't mean that He didn't love the other nine apostles. It just meant he was especially close to those three. But what this passage is encouraging us to do is to to step out of that circle every now and then. I need to think about the people who maybe are not in my close sphere of influence. The people, dare I say it, within my clique. Instead of discriminating against the people who may not be like me, maybe we're just different personality-wise, maybe we're different age-wise, maybe we're different in a lot of other ways, I'm going to reach across the aisle and I'm going to show that I love you. If for no other reason than the fact that you're my brother or my sister in Christ. Verse 17 now. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. In verse 17, I think Paul says that Christians are going to be concerned with our reputation. We're not going to be the people who go seeking after revenge. And Paul's going to expand on that in verses 19, 20, and 21. There really is wonderful liberation being described there in verse 18. That is, you do what you can to be at peace. And at the end of the day, that's all you're going to be responsible for. You're not responsible for that brother or that sister and their failure to be at peace. But you are going to be responsible for your end of that deal. There's some people in, in congregations who just, they're just not going to have peace no matter what, they're just resistant to that. It just seems as if their life is incomplete, if there's not always some kind of drama and furor going on. But you know what? Once we've done all that we can do to have unity, it's at our hands at that point. It's not our problem if others are not going to have that. Which then leads to those thoughts about revenge. Verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so the chapter concludes with a very strong warning about retaliation that for Christians, that's just never ever going to be an option. One writer described this idea of revenge. I'm going to just read his quotation here. He said, Revenge has a way of keeping evil in circulation. When there's revenge and vengeful thoughts, evil is always still present. He said, Whether that's in a family or a town or in an entire community, the culture of revenge, unless it is broken, it is never ended. And I think that's so. Paul quotes here from the book of Proverbs chapter 25 and verses 21 and 22 to say that we just don't have to be in the business of revenge. We need to just decide that that's just not going to be my domain. God's got that under control. I'll trust that He's very good at rendering vengeance, rendering retribution, giving justice and all of that kind of thing. It's God's job to square things away. We need to just let Him handle that. Instead of vengeance, we need to be ready to feed and help and pray for and support. And then verse 21, Paul summarizes, I think, kind of all of Christian ethics as he talks there that in dealing with evil, we can use evil sometimes to get our way. And if we do, then we have failed, even if we think we've succeeded. The key is to overcome evil with righteousness. That's our only choice at the end of the day. Because as Christians, we will never choose to be a part of evil of any kind. Now, as I look at the things that are listed there in verses 9 through 21, I should say, that's not an exhaustive list. It's not like the Romans could read through that passage and say, okay, check, 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 check. Okay, I did all those, you know, however many things there are there. And oh, now now I'm done as a Christian. I've done all the... That's everything. It's not an exhaustive list. These certainly are a lot of the things that the Roman brethren needed to hear. And those are things that we can hear and profit from as well. In fact, maybe my challenge to you this week is to find something there in verses 9 through 21. Is there something in there that you find that you don't do particularly well that you'd like to go to work on maybe in these next few days? There's actually several in those verses that really jumped out at me as I was studying for tonight. And there's some things I'm going to be diligent to get to work on. Maybe we need to just close with just some final practical applications as we look here at Romans 12 as a whole. I do think this chapter, the whole book, is about how to achieve unity in the local church. And we need to think about how that applies today. And so, with that in mind, let me just share with you a handful of things. First of all, I think Paul begins by showing us that unity requires a change of mind on our part. It requires us to change how we think. The world thinks that, hey, I need to be number one. That the very most important three people in the whole world is me, myself, and I. That's the way that the world thinks. And in fact, the world would like us to conform to that way of thinking. Paul says, we can't do that. We've got to break the mold, break out of that sort of thinking. Instead, we need to have the thinking that says, it's not all about me. It's about others. In the body of Christ, it's about my brothers and sisters. Furthermore, I think these passages teach us that unity requires us to be connected to one another. I think that's what verses 3 and 4 and 5 are all about. Think about in our physical body. I need every part of my body. And furthermore, I need it all to be connected so that it can all work properly. And if for some reason, if my finger, God forbid, ever got disconnected from the rest of my body, it's just not going to be very helpful for me it's going to cause me a lot of problems and a lot of trouble. And so it is in the body of Christ. We need everybody to be connected and to stay connected and in fact to foster and build that connection with each other. And one of the ways that we do that, thirdly, is when each one of us finds our gift and then we set about the task of using it. You know, maybe the very best way to cure the problems of church division is for people to just go to work. I wonder how many churches, whenever they experienced problems and and discord, how many churches, how many elders of those congregations said, you know what, the way to fix this is for each person needs to just get to work. We need to double down. Everybody needs to find what their talent is, find what their gift is, and just go to work on that. Just use it. What is it that God gave you? What ability have you been blessed with? Whatever it is, maybe you you don't even know what that is right now. You think about that, you find what that is, and you use it. You use it to the glory of God. Which then leads to saying something as well about how unity, I think, just requires a certain level of just putting up with one another. I I draw our attention again to verse 10 when it says there about loving one another with brotherly affection. I, I think that means that we are going to just put up with each other. We're going to put up with each other's idiosyncrasies. We're going to be willing to put up with each other's oddities and peculiarities. We're going to be willing to patiently forbear with brother off-key singer. We're going to be willing to put up with sister strange questions in Bible class. We're going to be willing to put up with brother or sister who does not dress the same way that I do for services. Why are we going to do that? We're going to be willing to put up with them because they're putting up with me. We're putting up with one another. This is a family. And that's exactly how a family works. We are all in this together. And that means we are going to be striving for peace with one another, for harmony with one another. And that requires a certain level of just putting up with stuff. I'm not saying that's easy. But I am saying that is what the Lord requires of us so that we can have unity in His body. Now, when you stop and think about all of it, the truth is this chapter really is not such a large dramatic jump away from the main story that Paul's been building for the first 11 chapters. It is not all of a sudden green eggs and ham, is it? No. It fits. It fits with what he's been building. We are still right in the middle of a story about unity with a church that is full of very, very different people. And about how a church of different people should and must be unified. That's a message that is just as relevant today as it was in the first century. And May God help each and every one of us to implement the truths that this chapter teaches so that we can be that unified congregation. In just a couple of moments, Matt's going to lead us in the song that he's chosen as a song of invitation, number 78, Faithful Love. Maybe be that there's someone here this evening who is not a Christian. And as a result, the things that we've talked about this evening from Romans chapter 12, in a lot of ways, you may just feel like it's not really talking to you. It's not really speaking to you. And that is true. Much of Romans chapter 12 is talking to Christians. People who are a part of the body of Christ. But I will tell you that the things that were said in those first two verses those things have wide application even beyond the body of Christ. Because what we're encouraging you to do tonight, what the invitation of Jesus is encouraging you to do, is to stop being conformed to the world. Stop living like them. Stop living in darkness. That's what the majority of people are going to do. But you have the opportunity tonight to step into the light, to transform how you think, to transform your very life, to go from one thing to something entirely different. This evening, through your faith and obedience to the gospel, you can go from being a sinner and the metamorphosis process will occur so that you come up out of that water a Christian, a child of God. Think about as amazing as it is for a caterpillar to turn into a butterfly. How much more amazing is it that God can turn a sinner into a Christian? You can do that tonight. We're ready to assist you in doing just that, to take your confession and to baptize you into Christ. If you are a Christian, but you've not been living as you should, maybe lots of the things that we've looked at this evening in chapter 12, you've just found some real shortcomings in your life. Maybe you just take care of that right where you're sitting and you ask God for forgiveness and you make some plans about how you're going to do better in the future. Maybe it's something of a public nature and you want to call upon this local family here to pray with you, and to encourage you so that you can serve Jesus Christ in a better way. We're ready to do that as well. Whatever your need may be tonight, you just need to make that known. Do that by coming to the front. Do that while we stand and while we sing.